Joshua chapter 24. This morning we're going to be looking at uh, verses 1 through 15. So we have two more weeks, including today, in the book of Joshua. This has been a kind of a, really a two-year endeavor. Uh, and as I said, if we're going to be starting the book of Acts in the new year. Uh, for now, we have a lot of good, solid work to do in Joshua chapter 24. So we're going to be looking at that today. Now, trust is something that has to be earned. We don't entrust ourselves to people who haven't proven themselves to us. That's because we want to know before we take a risk that we can rely on them. Trust is a choice, one that's easier to make when we have experience to back that decision up. If you were the owner of a company and you were looking to hire on an employee, especially if that was for an important position in your company, you'd probably ask to see that person's resume. You would interview them. You would want to know that this person was qualified and not only that they had the the, the right um, piece of paper to back up what their abilities are, but that they were actually capable and that they were trustworthy. You would investigate their work. You would talk to the people who recommended them, and you would ensure that the person you were looking at uh, to hire matched the way that they actually represented themselves on paper. You would do the hard work of interviewing them, of vetting them, because you want to know that when you bring them in, you can entrust the future of your company to them. You'd want to know that you could trust them with your own future. And eventually, though, after considering all of that evidence, there would come a moment where you would have to make a decision. You'd have to choose whether or not to put your faith in them and to hire them on. Faith has its reasons. Trust needs an anchor to hold on to. That really holds true when it comes to matters of the eternal. Matters that govern the way that we live, why we live, what we are hoping in, and what we are hoping for. Here in the last chapter of Joshua, we see that God does not call his people to trust him arbitrarily, without evidence, or without reason. He has not called us to be a superstitious people. He has called us to trust him, and he has proven to us time and time again why we can do that with full confidence, not only because of what's presented here in Joshua chapter 24, but also for all the ways he has continued to prove himself even today. When we think about Christmas, we are thinking about one more, one of the most significant evidences of God's faithfulness and God's love, which he has poured out on the world. So as we think about what it means to believe, when we think about faith, when we think about what this time represents, ultimately what we're looking at is, is we're looking at why we should trust God. For the past few weeks, as we've been wrapping up the book of Joshua, uh, we have seen the focus of this book shift a bit from informing us about how God has kept all of his very good promises to consider how we're supposed to respond to him in light of that. God's work in the world demands a response from each and every one of us. In the past two chapters that we've been looking at, uh, we have seen how, we, how to rightly respond to the fulfillment of those promises. Uh, we, first, we've seen that we're called to live with thankful obedience. We've seen that we are called to be committed to a pure and holy worship of God. And we've seen that, we, um, that we're called to strive after God uh, in and by His grace. 
This morning, we're going to look at a fourth response that we ought to have towards God as we live in the fulfillment of his very great promises. And that is simply this, that we must choose to trust him and we must commit to him in faithful service. So let's begin this morning by reading our passage together. If you would, please stand one more time with me for the reading of God's word as I read from Joshua chapter 24, verses 1 through 15. This is the word of the Lord. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with all that I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land. And I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you. The two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored. And cities that you had not built. And you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is an evil, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Please be seated. Well, this has got to be one of the most powerful moments in Israel's history and in the book of Joshua. What we're looking at this morning is the third and final gathering or assembly of Israel that was recorded for us in the book of Joshua after the land 
had been distributed to each one of the tribes and when after they had been sent in peace to their homes. Out of the three assemblies that we've looked at, each one of these has been in response to the fulfillment of God's promises. This is probably the most significant because it all culminates in the creation of a covenant between Joshua and the people as they commit themselves to serve the Lord. In this covenant, they agree together to commit themselves in keeping the covenant which God had made with them at Sinai, all the way back when God had first brought their fathers out of Egypt. This is a big deal. This is a big moment. Not only for the men and the women who made this commitment, but also for the future generations who were to come after them. The high point of this chapter is the institution of this covenant that Joshua and Israel made with each other to serve the Lord, though it doesn't happen until verse 25. Now we're going to look at that moment in detail next week as we wrap up our time in the book of Joshua. Today, we're going to be looking at what happened which led up to this moment. And what we find is that Joshua is calling the people to make a decision about whom they were going to trust, whom they were going to serve, now that they had received all the blessings that God had given them in the fulfillment of his word. As a whole, Joshua chapter 24 is sort of a last call to the people to serve the Lord with sincerity and faithfulness, which leads us to understand that in addition to what we have already seen in this final section of Joshua about how to live in a right response to the way God keeps his promises, is that the right response to God's faithfulness is to commit ourselves to him in faithful service. Now, here's the thing about a call like that. Faithful service to God takes faith. To serve God faithfully, you must first trust Him. And that's what our passage this morning aims to get at. What Joshua showed Israel, and what I want to show you this, uh, from it, from what he had to say to them, is that this faith, this trust, has its reasons. Reasons that give us full confidence to trust God above all other saviors, even ourselves. To show you that, I'm going to treat this text a little bit differently. If you grabbed one of those sermon notes, you know I have five points this morning, which might be a little scary to you. Um, but I think this is, as I thought about this, I felt like this was the clearest way to make this point to you. So three of the points we're going to look at have, are strictly to do with Joshua's sermon as it was applied to Israel in particular. So not a lot of application in these first three points. We're just going to try to understand the text. This, the last two points... Um, I'm, we're going to look a little bit more specifically at what this, these passage means for us. So these, are, these last two points are really what I think we're meant to take for us, uh, for ourselves, as we live in the new covenant that Christ has established through his blood. So that's how this becomes a Christmas passage. So I've got three points about the passage itself and two points of application for you to take from this passage of scripture and apply in your own lives. And I'm going to give you those as we come to them. Now, I've already kind of spoiled this passage a bit for you by telling you that the climax of this chapter, the climax of what's being related to us here, is the covenant. This is all leading to Joshua's covenant with the people. Now, your Bible may have already spoiled that for you in the margin or at the top of the passage by labeling something like the covenant renewal at Shechem. 
Uh, honestly, this has been around a long time, and I don't mind spoiling the mystery of things. Uh, I don't mind ruining it because in order for you to see the significance of what's happening in these first 15 verses, and in order to read these verses correctly and rightly, you need to understand where all this is going. Uh, this is not unlike being invited to a wedding. Uh, you go to a wedding expecting to see a man and a woman become one to be committed to each other, uh, to, to be committing themselves to each other before God and before witnesses in the covenant of marriage. That's the whole purpose of a wedding ceremony, right? It's not the dresses, it's not the flowers, it's not the music. Everything in that wedding is leading up to a very special moment, a moment that doesn't that only happens once in your life. Uh, and you're not supposed, as someone who comes into a wedding, you're not supposed to be surprised by the fact that the, the, the bride and the groom are making promises to each other and that there's a change that happens in that moment. That's why you went to the wedding in the first place. Well, Joshua 24 is like that. It's leading us up to this big moment where they make this covenant commitment to serve the Lord as a nation. Joshua has, has this purpose. That's why he gathers uh, the tribes of Israel to Shechem, to, really just to bring them to this point of making this covenant together before God. And while it takes him 25 verses to get to that purpose, it's important to see that that's where all this is going because it informs us how to read and understand everything he says to the people leading up to that moment. So, so what we're looking at here is a sermon from Joshua to the people leading up to a national recommitment to walk together before God in the place that he had provided for them, to observe and to enjoy the good gifts he had given them as his covenant people, to be a light to the nations. So, before Joshua brings them to that moment, we see that he rehearses for them all the ways God had cared for them. He reaches deep into Israel's past and reminds them how they came to have this relationship with God in the first place. And that leads us to consider his first point, which is simply this. A gracious God has brought you to this place. A gracious God has brought you here. That's the first point Joshua makes to the people. Canaan was special. It was special not only because that's the land that God had given to Israel where he established his dwelling place with them, where he blessed them, where he made them a light to the nations, but it's also special because it was the very place that God had promised their forefather, to, their forefather starting with Abraham. And before Joshua gets into the action of response... He starts by reminding the people uh, that, that, that they were here enjoying this land with all that it had to offer because God had done this for them. The focus here of verses 1 through 13 is all about what God had done for Israel. You might say, as we look at this, that Joshua started preaching and making this particular point to the people, preparing them for this decision to recommit themselves to the Lord before he even opened his mouth to speak. And that's because of where this covenant recommitment took place. In verse 1, we're told that Joshua called the people together. He gathered them at Shechem. Now, as I read that, I find that somewhat surprising. And the reason that's surprising is because this Shechem is not the location of the tabernacle. 
The tabernacle was the place where God made his special presence dwell, where people were called to worship him, to sacrifice, to come before him, and to consult with him. But the people aren't going to the tabernacle. That was at Shiloh. They're called here to Shechem. They present, and, and we're even told that as they gathered together, they presented themselves before God. So God is there meeting with Israel. So we have to ask ourselves, why Shechem and not Shiloh? Well, while there are a number of possibilities for that, I think the best explanation for this particular detail has to do with the history of what had happened in this particular place. Now, since we've been studying Joshua, most of you will recognize that Shechem was one of the cities of refuge for the manslayer. So if someone unintentionally killed their neighbor or someone else, they could flee to this city until that their case could be heard. This is also the city that was given, this is also one of the cities that was given as an inheritance to the tribe of Levi. But there's more to this place. If you go back a little bit further to Genesis chapter 12, you will find that Shechem was the place where God first made his promise to Abraham to give him this land. As Joshua recounts to the people in verse 2, he says, Long ago their fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, who was Abraham's father, and also the father of Nahor, Abraham's brother, and Abraham himself lived there. And they served other gods there. They served false gods. They were lost in the darkness of their sin. And then Joshua tells us about how God called Abram out of that land, away from those false gods, and actually brought him to Shechem, where he appeared to Abraham and said this, To your offspring I will give this land. So this where Israel is standing right now, listening to Joshua speak to them. This is where God's promise to their forefather, Abram, became tangible. This is the place where after Abram had left his homeland and come to the land of Canaan, that God began to show Abram what his inheritance looked like in tangible form and gave him the promise of what he was going to do. Now Shechem is significant for another reason. This also is the place where Jacob, Abraham's grandson, settled after he had first returned from living with his father-in-law Laban in Genesis chapter 33. And we're told in Genesis chapter 35 that this was also the place where Jacob had purified his household, which apparently, because of their time and in their time living with Laban, they had worshipped other gods besides the Lord. And so it's at this very place that Jacob said to his family to put away their false gods before they went and to purify themselves before they went and worshipped at Bethel. And we're told in Genesis 35 how they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and that Jacob buried them under a tree which was there in Shechem. So this place is historically important. Not only because this is where it all started for Abraham, but because this was the place of purification for the house of Israel. Now words, words are powerful. But I think we'll all agree there's something to be said about the impact of a location, especially when they're coupled with words. 
Imagine standing in the pulpit of Jonathan Edwards reading aloud his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I imagine it would strike you a little differently. What about reading the Declaration of Independence in that stuffy room in Freedom Hall where it was first written? What about hearing one of Spurgeon's sermons preached from the pulpit at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in England where he ministered? What about reading the Gettysburg Address as it is inscribed on Lincoln's memorial in Washington, D.C.? There's something about, there's a power to words themselves, but when those words are attached to a location, it enhances that power. Here we see Joshua at the very place where almost 600 years prior, Abraham had heard God say, I am giving this land to your offspring, and through your offspring, I'm going to make you a blessing to the nations of the world. This is the place where Jacob, who had just had his name changed by God to Israel, told his family, put away those foreign gods and purify yourselves because we're going to go worship the Lord, the one who has preserved me and all my strivings. And now here's Joshua standing at the same place before the people, relaying to them the word of the Lord, tracing out the story of their history, declaring everything that God had done for them, and calling them to a right response to that same God, the same God who had kept everything he had said that he would do. Now Shechem may not have been the place that God chose to establish his house at, but he was pleased to have his people gather before him in this place where he first where he had first drawn their forefathers, where they themselves had disposed of their allegiance to other gods to call them through Joshua to do the same thing in their own hearts. Shechem was a place for disposing of false gods and false saviors. It was a place that stood for allegiance to the one true God who had called and collected Israel to be his special covenant people. And it's for this reason that Joshua gathered Israel together as one man for the same purpose. Now, making a commitment like this took faith. And like I said before, faith has its reasons. Israel had a storied past covering hundreds of years leading to this moment. And we see that before Joshua jumps into any sort of call to response, he begins by laying that history out, diving into the highlights of that story in verses 2 through 5, reminding the people that it was God who had brought them to this place. So actually, as we look at Joshua's sermon here, um, actually, I, I mentioned that Joshua probably would have flunked my preaching class in college based on his last sermon. This one is like perfect. Uh, he starts with the word of the Lord. And he actually starts speaking not just as a preacher, but as a prophet. Since he declares, since what he declares is not, preach, is not preaching God's word so much, is it as actually declaring it to the Lord. He begins uh, this, the, his first verses 1 through 13 by saying, this is the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says to you. And then he speaks in the first person. So this isn't Joshua's opinion on history. This is God recounting through Joshua his great works to them. 
This is the story of Israel's past. And we see that it is the story of God's merciful and gracious generosity to them. And we see that in a number of ways. I want to draw two of them to your attention about from what Joshua actually says here. First, we need to see that Israel, that the way that this demonstrates God, that this is an act of God's grace. We see that Israel had, had done nothing to deserve this sort of treatment from God. And neither had their ancestors. God called Abram out of a pagan land. He was a worshiper of false gods. God called him out of the darkness of sin and transformed him into a man of faith, declared him righteous, and made him a blessing to the entire world. All of that, every single drop of it, was a result of divine grace, meaning that it was God who called and collected and founded and blessed because he chose to do it. God chose to love Abraham and his descendants and to bless him and to bless them and to make them a blessing. The second way we see this demonstrated in what Joshua says is we see that God overcame every obstacle that stood in the way of this redemptive plan. The first obstacle that God overcame, which is recounted for us by Joshua, is that he overcame, um, he, he overcame sin. He called their forefather Abraham out of the darkness of his sin. At the time of his calling, as I mentioned, Abraham was a pagan. He was worshiping false gods, just like the rest of his family. Abraham, Abram, at his time of his calling, has zero to offer God. He's not even the oldest of his family. And God calls him out anyway. Abram wasn't seeking God. God came looking for him. God reached into the darkness of Abram's sin. And for his purposes, he shone the light of his glory in Abram's heart. And he saved him. The second obstacle that we see recounted here is we see that God overcame the obstacle of barrenness. When he called Abraham, Abraham had no offspring. He had no children. And all of the promises God gave to Abram hinged on an offspring. But, verse 3, Joshua says, speaking, of, speaking the word of the Lord, God says, I gave him Isaac. So there was a problem. Abram had no offspring. God met the problem. He overcame the obstacle. I gave him Isaac. Isaac, we're told in Genesis, had a similar problem. His wife, Rebekah, was barren. But Isaac prayed, and God gave them Jacob and Esau. The third obstacle that's accounted for here is we see that God overcame the obstacle of famine. Remember, the whole reason that Jacob and his family ended up in Egypt was because while Joseph's brothers had traded him into slavery in Egypt out of the wickedness of their own hearts, we see, uh, based on what we read in Genesis, how God ordained all of that to pass so that Jacob and his family would not starve. And through Joseph... God preserved Israel in a way that no one had expected and fulfilled the word that he actually spoke to Abraham in Genesis 15 when he told him that his descendants would be enslaved for 400 years until the sin of the Amorites was full. Then we see how God overcame Israel's slavery. Verse 5, God says, I sent Moses and Aaron and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it and afterward I brought you out. So God did not abandon Israel to Egypt. Pharaoh was one of the most powerful rulers in the world, and yet he was no match for God. 
God called the nation out to be his people, and the hand of Pharaoh was not enough to withstand God's gracious purpose or his promises. Each one of these obstacles threatened to overthrow God's purpose. But here at Shechem is standing the the offspring of Abraham, Israel. They're standing there. Why? Because God was committed to fulfill his word and to see his redemptive promises through. The men and the women who were standing there before Joshua were living, breathing testimonies to God's gracious purpose and plan. In verse 13, God says to the people, I gave you a land on which you have not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell in them. You you eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. So everything that Israel had, they had because of God's grace. That was their history. It was their present and it was their hope for the future. Joshua wants the people to see and understand this that they served a gracious God, that they were where they were because God had brought them there so that they would then commit themselves to serve him with sincerity and faithfulness as his covenant people. He wanted the people to see that God was worthy of their trust and their affection. Now, the second point in Joshua's sermon is that God is the dedicated defender of his people. Joshua, uh, in his second point, he shows God the warrior. Now, Egypt was an ever-present danger to the south of Israel. Israel also had the Philistines to the southwest. Then continuing to surround them, they had the Ammonites, the Amorites, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Syrians, and the Assyrians. And later you had the Babylonians. Invasion could happen at any time. And Israel was located right where you needed to go through in order to get anywhere in the world. In the ancient world, the power of your God was the power of your people. So if you lost in battle, everyone took it to mean that it was because the, whoever won, it was because their gods were stronger than who had, who had lost. People also tended to believe that gods were regional. So you can imagine how tempting it would be for Israel, having arrived in this new land, in the land of Canaan, to be tempted to worship the gods of the people they had just defeated, in addition to worshiping the Lord. After all, the wisdom of man says, get help wherever you can, however you can. But God had shown that his power was not limited to a region or to a territory. He had also shown that Israel needed no defense from anyone else but him. And more than that, God had shown that to hope in anything or anyone besides him is foolish and futile. In verses 6 through 12, God reminds Israel that he was their divine warrior who had defended them and preserved them from every threat. Joshua actually accounts in this uh, sermon about four different military triumphs that Israel had because God fought for them as their king. Each triumph shows a different facet of God's power. In verses 6 and 7, we go back to Pharaoh in Egypt. And we see that not only did God show he was more powerful than the false gods of Egypt through all the plagues that he brought on Egypt, which if you study those, you'll see that they were each one of those plagues is actually specifically designed to take on an Egyptian divinity and to show that God is stronger. Every single one of them. And finally... God delivered Israel from the hand of Pharaoh and his army after they had pursued them to the Red Sea. We read about how God acted supernaturally there, parting the waters, allowing Israel to go through, preventing Pharaoh's army from being able to reach the people by by standing between them. And then after Pharaoh's army had pursued them, 
we see how God actually destroyed them before the eyes of the people. In verse 8, God accounts for how he gave victory to Israel over the Amorites by giving them into Israel's hand in battle, which shows us that God does not always give his people victory the way that he does he did on the shores of the Red Sea. Sometimes it looks a little more conventional. But regardless, Israel won because God gave the Amorites into his hand into their hands. In verses 9 through 10, God tells Israel about how he defended them from the Moabites and from the curses of the prophet Balaam, who Balak, the king of Moab, had hired to curse them. God proved his word to Abraham when he said, Whoever curses you, I will curse, and whoever blesses you, I will bless. Balaam's curses actually turned into blessings in his mouth. God says, I would not listen to him. He actually blessed you. You think that was because he suddenly had a moment of pity? I did that. This prophet for hire had no power because God was their divine warrior. No curse of man can undo the blessing of God. In verse 11, we see how God reminds the people how they overcame Jericho and how they overcame all the nations living in Canaan, fulfilling the promise that he had made to Abraham so long ago. In the second part of verse 11 and verse 12, God says, I, I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I did that. The gods that the nations looked to were no match for the Lord of all the earth, who had called Israel, who had collected them, who had overcome every obstacle for them, who had defended them as their divine warrior. And in peace and in war, Joshua wants the people to know that God was with them and that he was for them. He had defended them from every threat, and consequently, they could most certainly trust in him. Every other option is a false hope. So we come to the third point of Joshua's sermon in verse 14. And we see that Joshua's speech actually changes. And he comes to them with a decision to choose whom they will serve. Up until now, Joshua has been relaying to the people God's word concerning everything that he had done. They had a storied history as God's chosen people in spite of their sin because of his grace. And now we see that Joshua is addressing the people from his own heart. This is really where his sermon begins, appealing to the people on the basis of the word of the Lord that they had just heard. The purpose of verses 1-13 through wasn't just to give us a history lesson. There's a practical purpose here. And given all that we've seen about God's grace towards the nation of Israel and their fathers, and given all that we've seen about how God defended them, preserved them, and blessed them, there's an action to be taken here. There's a decision to be made, considering everything that Joshua has just laid out. And so Joshua lays out for the people three options. Option one, Israel can serve the Lord. Look at verse 14, Joshua says, Now therefore, so based on everything I've just said, Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods of your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. That's option one. Option two, in spite of God's faithfulness to them, Joshua tells Israel that they can return back to their pagan roots. That's option two. Look at verse 15. If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, or option three, we see that Israel can choose to assimilate and become like the people they've just driven out, worshiping the gods and the Amorites in whose land they now dwell. So, three options. The foolishness 
of options two and three are meant to be purposely obvious to you. Why would Israel ever consider returning to the false gods who their fathers were rescued from? Why would they ever choose to worship the gods of Egypt who were debunked by the plagues that God brought against Pharaoh? And finally, why would they ever worship the gods of the Amorites who had proven powerless to stop God? Israel has all the evidence of God's power that they need. Joshua, in 14 verses, has recounted to them everything they need to know to make this decision. It's clear. Option one is the only way to go. Serve the Lord. Forget about those false, powerless gods. Joshua says, we want truth. We want the real God. We want the Lord of all the earth. We want the one who keeps and sustains all things by the word of his power. We want the one who has kept his promises and blessings and keeps his people as their divine warrior and loving father. Joseph may present this as a choice to the people, but come on. Option one is the only path to take. Option one is the right response to the God who cares, to the God who calls sinners out of the darkness of their sins, who forgives them and cleanses them and makes them righteous and delivers and blesses and protects and always keeps his word. How could you say no after all this evidence that Joshua has laid out here? Only a fool could experience the things that these people experienced in the land of Canaan, watching God meticulously keep every single one of his promise and then say to themselves, "Mm, it's an evil thing for me to serve the Lord. I'll find my satisfaction somewhere else. You, You gotta love Joshua, though. Standing before the whole assembly, saying to the entire nation, here's the evidence. You guys make your decision. And even if none of you come with me, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, this is what true godly leadership does. Now, we're looking, we're going to look together at Israel's response to Joshua's challenge next week. But I'll sort of prime the pump for you here because it's important to get at the overall point that I want you to see from these verses we're looking at today. When Joshua presented this question to the people, they say they want option one. They said that they would fear the Lord. And they said that they would serve him with sincerity and faithfulness. They actually get into an argument with Joshua over the issue. In sincere worship, we worship God from the heart. Not just with our words. We worship and we serve him because that's why our hearts beat. We worship him because we love him. Faithfulness, faithful worship, means serving God and not departing from his commands from what he calls us to do, to the right hand or to the left, but like a faithful servant longs to listen to his master because he loves his master, so the servant of God listens and loves him above all else. Everything to the servant of God is an opportunity to make much of God, the God whom we love because he first loved us. Here's the gravity of the decision that Joshua has asked the people to make, though. If you turn two pages further in your Bible to the book of Judges, you will find that the resolve of the people didn't last more than a generation. That is the deadly curse of sin. The curse that affects us all. Because of Adam's sin, we call good evil and evil good. Because we have a desire for it, we suppress the truth in favor of the lie. And we fail to see that that is the case. 
Because of sin, we choose poison over the antidote. And as we look at our own lives and we we see that option one is the only option, we still look at it and we realize that we have all chosen options two and three because we have all pursued things that are not worthy of our worship and we have chosen to disobey God in favor of other things, thinking we can get satisfaction for them, throwing aside His grace. Who will deliver us from this body of death, wretched people that we are? Who who can enable us to choose the option of life? Who can open the eyes of the blind, soften the stony heart of the sinner, and set the captive free? Who can bring light into the darkness and turn death itself backwards? God can. And God does. Which brings us to our fourth point this morning. The triumph of God. Joshua 24 does so much for us. Because not only does it lay out for us the beauty of God's grace and the faithfulness of our Creator, not only does it demonstrate to us that He alone is worthy of our praise and our affection and our service by showing us how He's overcome every obstacle in history that would get in the way of His redemptive plan, showing us how committed He is to be glorified in the earth, it also shows us that the problem of our sin is real. And even as it does, though, just as it shows how God triumphed over Abram's paganism, just as it shows how God triumphed over Sarah's barrenness and Jacob's envy and Israel's slavery and Pharaoh's army and Balaam's greed and Canaan's might, it also shows us how he has triumphed over our sin. The answer for who will deliver me from this body of death, this body of death that would count service to God as an evil thing, is this. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, for he has done what the law could not, Romans 8 verse 3, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh anymore, but according to the Spirit. For our sake, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, God has triumphed. And every year when we celebrate Christmas, that is what we are celebrating. The inauguration of the work of Christ to redeem sinners like you and me from our sin. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. God has fulfilled his word. The land promises of the covenant which God made to Abraham were the beginning, the foreshadowing of something better, an inheritance which you have if you are in Christ, which is guaranteed to you, not because you were better or stronger or richer or poorer or worse, but because God acted on your behalf, because He is the faithful fulfiller of those promises, because none of His words ever fall to the ground void or fail to have their effect. God wins. That's what Christmas is about. God wins. At the same time, we need to see in our fifth point this, which is a point that I think Joshua 24 would have us to take with us into the Christmas season, which is that faith has its reasons. Faith has its reasons. We see that when Joshua wanted to inspire Israel to follow his lead, we will serve the Lord, my family. You can follow me if you want. He wanted them to follow him. But what, how did he fuel them to do that? 
Well, he presented the nation with tangible evidence meant to fuel that faith. Faith is not wishful thinking. Faith is not believing in Santa Claus. Faith is is trusting evidence and acting on it. Faith has its reasons. In 1 John verse 1, or chapter 1, the Apostle John writes this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, meaning it was made visible, and we have seen it, and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John believed it was real because he saw it. We talk a lot at Christmas about peace on earth, about joy, about love, about family, fellowship, generosity, and rightly so. But just as Joshua pointed out to Israel that all the good things that which they were experiencing in the land they had just received had come through the generosity, the grace, and the triumph of the Lord, so also we need to see that those good things that we desire and long for, those things which have been secured for us, have been secured through Jesus Christ who entered into this world, took on our struggles, overcame our sin, suffered as an atoning sacrifice for his people, rose in victory from the grave, and sits now exalted at the right hand of God where he rules and has declared that he is coming back to make all things new. You know, we sing a lot of Christmas carols at Christmas that have terrible meanings and are very historically wrong. I was just thinking as we were singing our songs today how right it was. Praise God for that. The joy of Christmas is not just that a baby came and was put in a manger and fulfilled all the promises he was meant to fulfill, but that it set into motion even greater promises which are made new in Christ, are established in Christ, and are yet to come. It gives us confidence for the future. So, the question I have for you, the thing I think we're meant to take from this passage, a passage like Joshua 24, verses 1 through 15, that so vividly, a passage that so vividly outlines God's grace and mercy and love, is the same question that Joshua put to the people of Israel. Will you fear the Lord? Will you treat him with the respect he is due? Will you love him with your whole heart as he is lovely? Will you serve him with sincerity and with faithfulness, putting away everything else that is vying for your attention and your praise? Have you trusted in Christ and received the new life that he has purchased for you? The evidence is there. It's there, it's there to be explored. It's there in the same way that Joshua and the people didn't even get to enjoy Sure, they got to see the hand of God work in ways that you and I can only imagine. But we live in a new time. A time when the word of God has been made flesh and has dwelt among us. Emmanuel, God with us. So we celebrate Christmas this coming weekend. I want to encourage you to remind yourself to be, to, of what we are celebrating.
We are celebrating how God has overcome for us, how he has secured every blessing and secured those things and has fulfilled his word by sending his son who became one of us so that we might become like him through faith. Let's pray. Our great God and King, as we read about, as we read these words that you spoke through Joshua to the people of Israel, it seems so clear to us that there is no option besides following you. And yet we know, even now, even as we walk out of here, there are going to be things, options that are going to present themselves to us. They're going to vie for our attention and, 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 and appeal to the desires of our heart to lead us away from that. Rather than in the, the chaos of the holidays, it's so easy to lose sight of why we're doing this in the first place. So our appeal to you this morning, Father, is that you would set before us what you have done through Christ in such a way that we can look at nothing else and that everything else that we do look at is looked at through the lens of his grace. And that we would see everything in our lives as a means to make much of you. Because you are worthy of that. And Father, even as we pray that for ourselves, we pray that for those who you put us into contact with. Whether that's family, or friends, or random people we stand in line with as we're, as we're shopping out, or, or our co-workers. Those who have not come to know you as their Lord and Savior. And Lord, as we look at this from man's perspective... We see it's impossible. But as we read your word, we see that you are the God who accomplishes the impossible. And our appeal to you, Father, this morning, is that you would exalt Christ through your spirit by making him the Lord of the life of sinners who are around us. That you would make him the Lord of our own life as we trust in him as the Savior of our sins. And then as we do so, Father, we pray the life of the light and the light of Christ will be put on display for all to see. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.